many of the insurance carriers have now come out in the last 30 to 45 days and said, don't worry, we've got your back on CAA. Well, first of all, where were you the last two and a half years? You're just now figuring this out. We're going to file that attestation for you. You're welcome. Well, there's a little bit of a fox watching a hen house there. We're going to file it for you. We didn't invite you to read it. We didn't invite you to review it. We didn't invite you to discuss it. We got your back. This is Christy Gupton, and I'm an employee benefits advisor. I understand how hard it is to embrace change when you have employees depending on you for a great health plan. This podcast is uniquely designed to answer your most pressing questions. Let's get right to it. Tony Sorrentino has a one of a kind skill set. He's been a CPA, he's been an attorney, he's been a benefits advisor. You know, I've remarked a time or two that being in benefits is the hardest job in America. I mean, you need to have expertise in a whole host of different areas. Well, Tony has that. When the Consolidated Appropriations Act of 2021 came along, he was at the perfect place and ready to embrace another season of change that he knew would have a big impact on the healthcare industry. If you sponsor a health plan, it's likely that you're subject to this law and you need an internal process to comply with it. And as Tony says, it's the greatest opportunity to lower your costs without hurting the quality of care your employees depend on. Once you hear Tony's comments, you'll be prepared to get started, get organized, and get in compliance in a way that doesn't leave unanswered questions. Your deadline, by the way, is December 31st of 2023. So enjoy today's conversation. Oh, and P.S., if you're a client of Custom Benefit Solutions or one of the Mitigate partners, a special discount to HP FID is waiting for you. So don't forget to grab that deal. Okay, let's talk to Tony. Okay, welcome Tony Sorrentino from HP FID. Thank you so much for being my guest today. Thank you, Christy. So today we're going to talk about um, the fiduciary process. We're going to go way back in history and and we're even going to go forward into the unknown. So this is going to be a fun conversation. But Tony, I'm going to be honest with you here and tell you I am very envious of your career path. I I wish it had occurred to me back in my days in in college that I should have studied the law and maybe even gone to law school um cuz i just think my brain is wired that way i i like logical pathways i like definitions and terms especially when they're very clear and i i think that i i just would have been a better benefits advisor if i'd had your career path so i'm jealous of you but go ahead and tell the audience your history and background and how your career has ended up at this point. Well, thank you. Uh, when you hear the real story, you may not be quite as envious, but I uh, I graduated from college with an accounting degree with the anticipation of simply going in, you know, becoming a CPA and being an accountant. And I did that for a couple of years. And the state where I happen to live, uh, like a lot of states, had a two-year experience requirement in addition to passing exams. So by the time I had done that, I had developed a not so much uh, a disinterest in accounting, 
but more of an interest in the tax field. And back then, it's not so true now, but most of the tax experts, if you will, went to law school. So I went to law school, uh, graduated from Creighton University in 1981 and was intending to pursue a career as a tax attorney. Somehow fell right back into public accounting, stayed there for a few years and uh, meandered to a a well-known brand name insurance carrier called Mutual of Omaha, where I ended up being a tax attorney, but specializing in the retirement plan area of all things. And one day received a phone call from a recruiter and said, somebody who's in the insurance consulting business wants an attorney who has experience in group health plans, to which I responded, I can't spell group health plans. I work for an insurance company. I'm all retirement. And they said, good, you're the perfect fit. So I went there and uh, 32 years later, uh, we ended up selling the firm. But during those 32 years, I became uh, an insurance consultant uh, using my accounting and legal background and uh, got deep into the woods on ERISA, specifically uh, just group health plans, not retirement work. We, we did that, but it wasn't my charge. Uh, so I led a group of Oh, by the end, about 75 group consultants um, that certainly did all the things that your typical broker would do. We placed coverages and negotiated rates and put together a lot of self-funded plans. And I did a lot of plan design. And the way we grew our practice was maybe the way most don't. We welcomed, and I particularly welcomed, uh, changes in the law. Because changes in the laws that went through, yes, it was a lot of work for consultants, but it got you time in front of your clients. And time in front of your clients is a great way to build your practice. So we were a very, very compliance-oriented shop. Uh, The people that worked for and with me were also either attorneys, accountants, actuaries. So it didn't look like your, your typical insurance brokerage, maybe down the street. We resembled more of the, maybe the big four or five with just a local flavor. In fact, many of the people I hired were from uh, the Locktons of the world and the Marsh, et cetera. So we became a little bit of a boutique practice, uh, building it that way, and it spilled over in other areas of our practice. And four years ago, just about to the day, uh, many of my partners and I were reaching an age where we were thinking about either retiring and doing something else. So um, we sold our practice to kind of a household name, uh, Hub, uh, four years ago, and I stayed on for about 13 months into the transition. And once that happened, I I retired for about 30 minutes and started a new company uh, with four or five guys I knew that had done the exact same thing in other cities, most of them in Colorado, one in Wisconsin. And now our practice is focused purely on one law. And that was the one that you and I had discussed, you know, offline, the Consolidated Appropriations Act. And for those that will want to learn more about it, it was it was an act that was enabled at almost the last day of 2020, at uh, December 27th of 2020, and I retired three days later. And we jumped into that. And we've I'll stop there. We've got so many iterations to get to HP Fed, but that's how I first got involved in the fiduciary aspects. So where were you when it was passed? Did you already know it was coming or it was it 
it's kind of one of those like where were you when JFK was shot? What what right. was going on in your life at that time? Well, I know you probably weren't even alive when JFK was shot, but, <laughs> but I was in fourth grade. Uh, you know, one of my now partners and I had been talking back and forth during the year of uh, we've been twenty twenty during transition about uh, I guess the way we'd like to put it is there's a lot of there's a lot of bodies buried in healthcare. And we knew they were wherever they were buried because we probably buried a few of them. And maybe it was time to take off, if you will, not so much the black hat, but the gray hat and put on the white hat and see what we can do in our so-called retirement years to help improve health care. So we knew that a law was coming. There was a lady named Katie Talento who did the, most of the drafting of that. One of my partners actually knew her quite well. We weren't sure if it would see the light of day. We were in the last literally three weeks of the two weeks of the Trump administration. Uh, there were some other things happening in January of 2021 that stole all the headlines, but it was passed at the very end of that administration and really didn't get much traction, didn't get a lot of press. And what, what it did get when it got press was about the part of the bill that deals with transparency because people had talked about that a long time. Oh, it'd be nice to be able to, you know, put in knee replacement and find out what the cost of that is for your local hospitals and doctors. And wouldn't that be cool because we could shop for healthcare like we do for groceries. And that part of the bill, which was a thousand of the 1100 pages, got a lot of press eventually, mostly because it was putting the burden on hospitals and doctors and clinics to do this. And they'd never done that. And I will tell you, some of them still have it, um, <laughs> but it got the train moving. And so our idea was, well, let's see if we can make, you know, make an opportunity out of uh, out of this opportunity, make something happen. Because we know that eventually when this information gets out there publicly, plan sponsors are going to have to do something with that information and, you know, with great uh, opportunity comes great responsibility and the plans are going to be responsible for this. And here we are. Oh, today's uh, we're about 45 days or so from the very first big compliance day for plan sponsors. And that's the attestation that we'll get into that, but you no know, gag clauses be removed. So we've spent the better part of the last 18 months taking our message out there and that message, uh, as former consultants and brokers, we thought the best place to take that message might be the broker consultants. And in some cases, we've been right. In a lot of cases, we've been wrong. So it's a it's a great message. It's full of opportunity, but it's not necessarily well known yet. I agree. You know, when I, when that law was first passed, I thought, wow. There was literally no discussion about this in in any sort of news. It was like the sleeper law. So like kudos to everyone who had fingerprints on on this part of the CAA because they kept it like state secrets um, until it you know, until it surprised everybody, because you know good and well, if any of the corporate overlords in healthcare had gotten wind of this, they would have crushed it early on. But I don't know who 
is the director of strategy around how this thing was rolled out, but they are a genius. Yeah, it it's kind of interesting in that it did come out of nowhere, even for benefit consultants, uh, and a lot of them still don't know a lot about it. And in my opinion, and I've gosh, I've been in tax since 1976, just two years after ERISA. For plan health plan sponsors, it's the greatest opportunity of my lifetime and their lifetime to actually be able to get their costs, analyze those costs, benchmark those costs, and do what they actually legally now have to do for their plan participants. And it's an opportunity that I don't want to waste. And I'll say this sort of cryptically. There will be insurance carriers, all the middlemen. There's so many parties involved in healthcare. They'll find a way to put more fat back in the healthcare premium. They'll continue to go up. But right now, you're right. This caught them with their pants down a little bit. And I, I love the reaction over the last 12 months of some of the sometimes we'll call BUCA, Blue Cross United Healthcare, Cigna, Aetna, Health, Humana, but there's there's a lot of carriers and a lot of them are great carriers. But the data that they have belongs to the plan sponsor. So we've got this enabling legislation to get it and we're having trouble getting it. There's some interesting games being played. And once we get it, it's kind of hard to know what to do with it. And that's our job. If I looked at the Consolidated Appropriations Act and in one sentence said, what does it require? It requires the plan sponsor to have a process. You have to have a process. That process and that process is to uh, pay your fiduciary duty to your plan sponsors. And that plans that, that process is it's not easy, it's brand new. It's a teachable moment for consultants if they embrace that. But boy, they need to take advantage of it. And they need to take advantage of it now before it's closed. So I thank you for the word process because I, my next question, and I don't script my podcasts ever, but I did just write down um, a question just so that I didn't gloss over it. But I just want you to just define in your own and just real word real world terms, the fiduciary process, and then just pontificate as long as you want to about that, because a lot of plan sponsors believe, well, we're doing our fiduciary duty just by maybe getting quotes from other carriers. But no, it goes way deeper down to the cellular level of how healthcare is paid for. So just run off as as long as you want to about the fiduciary process. Well, thank you. Quite often, well, it seems like every day I'm on either a podcast or something uh, determining you know where we want to be on this. But oftentimes I'll get a question and thank you for not doing it that way. Hey, in 10 words or less, tell us about the Consolidated Appropriations Act. That's not easy. But what I have done is I guess I could say I've developed an elevator speech. And, uh, and I'll give you the elevator and maybe put a little meat on the bones. But if I had to capsulize it, it would be this. Health plan sponsors must use their best, and then I'll count it off five things. Health plan sponsors must use their best effort towards accountability by performing benchmarking and following up with documentation in order to complete their attestation. So effort, accountability, benchmarking, documentation, attestation. What does that mean? At its heart, uh, a fiduciary responsibility 
means that you do the best that you can. It does not in any way, shape, or form uh, require perfection. Uh, it doesn't require a, a zero uh, zero accountability for, for loss. It does say you have to make an effort. There's a I use a baseball analogy. If a ball is hit between the third baseman and the shortstop, and they just look at each other and let it go by, that's an error. They didn't make any effort. Right. If they both, if the third baseman goes to his left and the shortstop goes to the right, it just tips off their glove, it's going to bounce into left field, but nobody's going to be charged with an error because they made the effort. As a plan sponsor, you're not going to be able to achieve perfection. You're not going to be able to get all of your data every time. You're not going to get everything you need to be the perfect fiduciary, but you have to be able to demonstrate to the Department of Labor that you made that effort. So how would you go about proving that? Well, a good place to start would be put together some sort of a written documentation or a plan. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to send out letters and HP fit. It's not, a, this is not a commercial for HP fit. We've designed template letters that you can use to send to your claims payer, whether that's Blue Cross or a TPA saying, according to section 201 of the CAA, it's our job to rid our plans of any clause, gag clause, that denies us access to our information. So right now, either A, send us a copy of that uh, agreement if we don't already have it so that we can review it. And if we find that there are gag clauses in it, and there are every single time, don't let anybody, including the carrier, tell you they're not because there are. And they right. will tell you there's not. Then what are you going to do to remove them? Are you going to send me a brand new agreement? Are you going to amend the agreement that I have? Or be honest with me. If you're not going to remove them, then tell me so. And then I'll deal with that because... First and foremost, the Consolidated Appropriations Act is an employer law. It's much like COBRA. It's an employer law. You can, you can delegate the responsibility. You can never delegate the liability. So this is on you, employer. So you might start that effort by, by contacting each of those parties. You would send a similar letter to your PBM, your pharmacy benefit manager, requesting your pharmaceutical data. You might send a letter to, depending on how you're funded, regarding mental health parity information. Because while you don't have to report mental health parity information, you do have to do an analysis and have it on the ready in the event that you are audited or it's reviewed by the Department of Labor. And finally, at some point, you're going to have to do an attestation. And we'll talk about that in a minute. So the first effort is to gather your information. And even before that, you might put together a team internally to do that. It's hard to do by yourself. You need people who are familiar with all the players in your plan. You need people who've been at least generally trained in CAA. That's sort of where, where HP Fit gets started. We do the training. We make you aware. We give you the tools, the templates to go out and retrieve this data. The reason you do that is because there is a standard of care. It's, it's not much different if you were if you were in law school and I teach this course, I would tell you there's a standard of care. A standard of care deals with what degree of negligence. You don't want to be negligent at all, but you certainly don't want to be grossly negligent by not doing anything and not putting in the effort. So 
that effort will lead towards some level, some standard of care, some accountability for doing what you, the plan sponsor, owe to those plan participants. Even, even more difficult is if you're able to get that information. And remember, even if you don't get it, you have to be able to prove that you tried. Mm -hmm. What do you do with it? Right. Uh, hopefully, your benefit consultant can help you on that. Some can, some can't. If you're a, an itty-bitty plan, you're a 10-life group, you're still subject to Consolidated Appropriations Act, the data you get may or may not even be your own. You might be in a pool. You might be given information in the aggregate. It may not, in your case, be a tool for you to save dollars on your health plan because maybe all that data isn't yours. But to the extent it is your data, you have the responsibility to benchmark that data, but just a fancy word to compare it. Uh, if you're self-funded, you could go out and compare your data to what that would cost in other networks. There might be several networks where you live that you could rent, or if you're using Blue Cross, they have their network, Cigna has theirs. So do a comparison to see not only uh, can you save money, but judge it on the quality of care. So there's a benchmarking process. So you perform that benchmarking. And once you do that, you follow it up by documenting. Well, here's what we have and here's what it costs. But over here, I have this and this and this, that it has a different cost. And nothing in CAA said, you have to go to the lowest cost network. It does not say that. It says you have to be accountable by doing the benchmarking. It doesn't say you have to move. But if there is a vast difference and you don't do it, it does call into question whether or not you're performing your fiduciary duty. So do a comparison. And even though somewhere else might be cheaper, maybe the demographics don't work out for your group. And everybody has to travel 67 miles to get you know, a diagnosis and a first opinion at a primary care uh, level that we don't have locally. Well, that may not be reasonable. So it is, it is, there is built in their reasonableness. You don't have to do something that's not reasonable. But you don't know until you look. So that's the that's the benchmarking part of it. And then you, when you document that, here's what I did, and here's why I made the choices that I did. And finally, and it's a little bit unrelated to costs and carriers, but there is an attestation process that everybody has to complete. I'll spend a minute here. Mm -hmm. It's it's been made somewhat simple. And that the CMS, Center for Medicare Services, has developed a website that you can go to. And it's like a spreadsheet. And you document each one of your plans that's subject to CAA. And basically, without getting into the weeds, that's your medical plans. It's your medical plan. If you've carved out your pharmacy plan, it's that. It's your vision plan. Uh it could, it could be a few other things that we won't go into today, but those are the general, the medical, the pharmacy, the vision uh, plan. Could be an HSA. That's a little trickier. But you attest that you have made your best effort towards removing gag clauses from those written administrative agreements. Hopefully plan sponsors have those agreements. Hopefully their uh, advisors have helped them go through those. I find a lot of times they have not, but as we said before, it's up to you to go get those, review those, and remove those clauses, and then you attest to that. You are not attesting to whether or not 
pharmacy data has been sent to HHS, even though that's one of the pillars of it. You're not attesting that you've reviewed the mental health parity aspects. You're not attesting to the fourth pillar that we haven't talked about, that you've gone out and retrieved the data regarding the compensation of your healthcare advisors. Healthcare advisors, if you're listening, you're a broker, you need to send that or somehow communicate that to your plan sponsors. But oddly enough, that really is, from a liability standpoint, on the plan sponsor to request it. If you're an advisor out there listening, you should be sending it. If you're a plan sponsor, if you haven't got it, you better request it. You need to do that because, again, that's a cost of the plan. And if you can't tell your plan participants what that's costing you, have you really been a good fiduciary? I'll give a shout out here to the Health Rosetta. And and I've been uh, a Health Rosetta credentialed advisor since 2017. So I've been you know, disclosing my compensation to my clients um, every year since 2017, well before this law was passed. But it it definitely is a surprise to me. Um, the blank stares I get back from prospects when I talk to them about, hey, what are you what are you paying your broker? What are they earning? And, you know, when they can't demonstrate that they know anything about that. And I, and I sometimes will throw out, Hey, did you realize that last December 27th was the deadline for you to have gotten your first broker compensation um, uh, disclosure from your broker? So you're late by now. (laughs) And again, more blank stares like deer in the headlights. Look, oh, they almost don't believe me. And so it's just really something else how how the the entire industry has sort of um, cast this aside. And I'm guessing it's really it's sort of like the way um, 401k plans went through their whole fiduciary transition, I guess, after the whole Enron explosion. Right. right. They it was it was sort of that that caught everybody with their pants down. And um, lawsuits from plan sponsors suing the, um, I mean, lawsuits from the members of 401k plans suing the plan sponsors over all kinds of monkey business that was happening in retirement plans. Um, And those, those lawsuits still occur plenty often today. I'm guessing, I don't want to talk about the future just right now, because I want to talk about that last, but I'm, I'm looking and predicting that it's going to take a, a plan sponsor essentially being chalked up in front of a judge as um, someone who has breached their fiduciary duty and they're going to have to pay dearly for not being the fiduciary they were supposed to be in a health plan before a lot of other health plan sponsors are going to believe us, right? Do you think so? (laughs) Yeah, let's talk about that. You mentioned retirement plans and it was around 08, 2008 where this exact same thing that's happening in healthcare plans happened there. And at the time, the average plan participant was paying something like 6% of their account balance and fees. And they went through this whole revolution like we're going through now about education of plan participants and eliminating funds that weren't doing anything but throwing off fees 
And that average plan management fee now is something like half a percent. It took a lot of the fat out of the retirement plan industry. It's going to happen in the health industry. In my opinion, it's uh, it's going to take a while. Uh, a lot of the plan you know, carriers that we're talking about, these are huge Wall Street performers. They are not going to give up their bottom line just because somebody said so, and it's a good idea, and it's good for plan participants. They're just not. And there's so many layers in healthcare. It's not just the plan and their insurance carrier. Oh my gosh, there's hundreds of layers. People taking a bite out of the apple here. So it's gonna it's gonna take a while. And I didn't mention that. Frankly, by 45 days from now, if plan sponsors haven't done their attestation, they haven't put together a fiduciary process. There is a there's there's two ways it could cost, or there's three ways it could cost them. Number one, the plan sponsor is subject to to penalties. Yeah. And those penalties for non-compliance uh, with CAA is $100 per day, per employee, no limit. So if you're a group of 1,000, it's $100,000 a day. Oh, my goodness. Times, times a whole lot of days. I didn't ever think about it that way. I mean, yeah, maybe in the back of my mind, I knew there was some penalties, but I just didn't even think about it that way. So yeah. and not only are they subject to being sued by their plan members, they're also subject to penalties levied on them by uh, the response, you know, the responsible department, I guess, DOL is going to levy these yeah. penalties. So you've, you've got that, which you think would probably get some off of debt center. It hasn't so much, but the second level is what you mentioned, the potential for planned participant lawsuits. I can tell you, I won't use any names, but if you were to go on LinkedIn and do a little search, maybe about law firms who are all over this, um, some of them the same law firms that did very well in 2008 pursuing plan sponsors for retirement plans, they are literally naming names. If you are an employee of this company or that company, you should contact us about your health care plan. I know this because some of these law firms have contacted me and say, hey, you know, we're kind of on the same team here. Well, actually, we're not. Uh, you're suing the plan sponsors. I'm trying to help the plan sponsors. But they're right in doing what they are because there are a lot of plan participants who are not receiving the best treatment. So what would a law firm have to do to make a case against a plan sponsor? Uh, a long time ago, uh, when I was in law school, there was this thing called a tort. And a tort is basically an act of negligence. And to build a case, these law firms need to prove a couple things. They need to prove that who's ever, who's ever bringing the lawsuit has standing. Mm -hmm. And if I'm a plan participant in a health plan, I automatically have standing. They need to prove that there was some act of negligence on the part of the plan. Well, that act of negligence is I don't want to. I don't want to see the CAA. I'm not. I know about it. I'm not going to pay attention to it. And ignorance is bliss. Well, it turns out as it's not. So they have this cause of action, and they have to prove that they were somehow uh, injured by that cause of negligence. 
And therein lies the fact that, well, but for the actions of my plan sponsor, my health care premiums would have been lower because they would have gotten the information, they would have done the proper benchmarking, and my costs would be less. And that's much, much easier to prove in a self-funded plan where you can go cause by clause by clause and figure out what they did. So law firms are now, because of CAA, it's a very friendly thing to law firms. Uh, they can now quantify those damages. You can't bring a civil lawsuit without quantifying damages. And now they can, by hook or by crook and making some educated guesses, well, the plan would have saved $5 million. And when I when the plan sponsor put together their premium equivalencies, they charged me $925. It should have been $750. So I'm damaged. Now you multiply that times every employer and you have a really big award that is potential. Will that happen in 2023? No, but there are law firms already targeted certain very large plans. They're getting their data together. They're learning, like all of you are by listening to this, what people like me are telling those plans to do to protect themselves. And, you know, things slide both ways. They can use what we're telling plan sponsors to say, hey, did you do those eight things that HP Finn and a lot of other people told you? Well, no, as a matter of fact, I didn't. And the oh, plan, sponsor, plan sponsor way very well turned to their advisor and say, why didn't you tell me this? And they can turn to their advisor all they want, but that advisor is not a plan petition. That's, you know, thank you so much for laying it out that way, because I think, again, I'll say this again, said it a minute ago, plan sponsors essentially think they've done their due diligence by the typical renewal quoting spreadsheeting process. That is not your fiduciary process. That is just your broker's process. Right. <laughs> exactly right. What they want to sell you. Um, I, I just, there, there's so much misunderstanding by plan sponsors of what their duty actually is. I want to give another shout out to a guy named Don Trone, who I met at a Health Rosetta Summit um, the summer before this past one. And um, he runs a program called uh, Center for Board Certified Fiduciaries through Wake Forest University. And I took half of his program. So um, I have some knowledge and a, and a little designation called Global Financial Steward. If I finish the, the next half, I think I'll have um, a different designation called Board Certified Fiduciary. And trust me, I want it. Because I love, like I said early on, I love this framework because when you stay uh, within the framework and you do your true due diligence, not just your broker's quoting and spreadsheeting process, when you dig deeper and you really do your due diligence, that's when you have performed your fiduciary duty to the best of your ability. And I really um, applaud HP FID for creating a tool that helps fiduciaries do their real due diligence, not just some other broker's dog and pony show. You know, you just said something that, uh, with your permission, I'm going to steal that line. Uh, it's uh, it's permission a granted. You, yeah, thank you. You didn't you didn't necessarily do your fiduciary duty. You did that of your broker. I mean, I was a broker for 32 years. We put thousands and thousands of you know groups out to bid. 
That's the process of the broker. That's not the fiduciary process of the employer. Uh, like every law that I've been around in just coming up on 50 years doing this, the responsibility always, always, always slides down to the employer. It's never on the carrier. It's never on the TPA. It's never on a third party. They're, the very essence of ERISA means putting the responsibility on the employer. And this one is no different just because it's newer. And I'll say this, some of it, some of the, traction that we're not getting uh, could be because there's there's a general malaise about, oh, the government, the government, the government, and they're never going to catch me, and how are they going to figure this out? And if they audit me, it's not going to be for this. There's a lot of ways they might get into this. People thought that about HIPAA too. Uh, but I will, I'll take a stab a little bit at the broker industry because I, I was one for so many years. The broker community needs to wake up too. Um, you're being painted, and sometimes unfairly, with a tainted brush in that you're not jumping on this because you have a conflict of interest. I was a broker for a long time. Most of, not all, most of our compensation was paid to us by insurance carriers in the form of commissions. As time evolved, we probably got much more fee-driven over the years than we did initially. And I'm sure my old practice now is probably almost all fee driven, but everybody knows, and it's not this secret that people think it is, that there are incentives paid to brokers. And you mentioned before that you always disclosed your fee as you're supposed to in advance of the coming plan year. So if my, if my client, my plan sponsor is a calendar year plan, by December 31st, I needed to tell them, what I anticipated making, not only in commissions, but perhaps in what I'll call overrides or marketing fees. I had a deal, let's say, with a Blue Cross somewhere, and they said, hey, Tony, if your retention is 95% or better and you had 5,000 lives, we're going to give you some extra money. That's fine. It's legal. Nothing wrong with that. Sometimes that is your only uh, margin. But it's not right to not disclose that. And if you don't know what the amount's going to be, you disclose the formula. If you're, if you're worried about doing this, and my partner said, Tony, you're crazy because we started doing it before 2000. What are you doing? Well, we used it as a marketing tool. Mm -hmm. Just as you said, I can't tell you how many times I went into a client and we're having a nice talk about services we can render. And I say, by the way, uh, you know, one of your duties is to make sure that you have to protect your plan fiduciaries. This is pre-CAA. It was based on a 1978 private letter ruling, I said, and, and which turned out to be a, a prohibited transaction later, can I, would you mind sharing the letter you received from X broker regarding, and, and they looked at me like you said, I don't know what you're talking about. It was kind of fun to watch their face when I told them that, you know, it's not the broker's fault, it's your fault for not gathering that and you need a better process. It was the greatest marketing tool of all time. <laughs> so if you're a broker worried about it, turn it around, use it as a, use it as a prospecting tool. Cause there's a lot of brokers that maybe aren't disclosing that. Yeah. I mean, one, one of the, my fellow uh, health Rosetta advisors that I just respect so much, um, Scott Haas, he came out early on and said, this is a gift. This CAA, it is a gift to our industry. Absolutely. We finally 
get to be on the same side as our clients and prove it in dollars and cents. You know, I agree, hundred percent. I want to talk about the who is this subject to the gag clause attestation um, and the other elements of CAA. Who who needs to comply based on how they're either structured or how they pay for healthcare or their size or whatever. Um, and then, oh, well, I, I forgot my second point. So let's just talk about that. Who we'll needs start with to pay that. attention to this? Uh, in its, in its purest form, CAA is an amendment to the Public Health Safety Act, PHSA, and to ERISA. So if you're an ERISA group, and I'll stop there, a lot of plans don't know if they're an ERISA group. If you are a, a private sector plan, i.e. not government, not quasi-governmental unit, you're subject to ERISA if you have two lives or more covered. It does not have anything to do with funding methodology. So a two-life group for a local grocery store and the plan for Google are both subject to the same set of laws from ERISA. Doesn't matter if one's two, one's Two million and two, doesn't matter if one's self-funded, the other's fully insured, subject to ERISA. There are subject, there are, there always have been for a long time, uh, exceptions to ERISA. I mentioned governmental units, quasi-governmental units. There's an exemption for church plans. And while we won't go deep, deep into those, uh, don't be surprised, and, and I say sort of tongue-in-cheek, Get with your broker on this, but your broker may have to get with your law firm or accounting firm or something. Sometimes, just because you're a governmental unit, say you're a city or a school district, you may be subject to ERISA through other channels. Number one, you may live in a state, and I'm not—I don't know the laws of any other state than the one I live in. Your state may have a law that very strongly resembles CAA and that it says to your governmental state agencies and school districts, you too have a right, have, a, have an obligation to have a fiduciary responsibility to your plan participants. Whether it's the state of Nebraska, the city of Omaha, where I happen to live, you need to look into the state law. And it frankly may have been around way before CAA that says you have to do some of these things very similarly. Another way you might get caught up in being responsible for this, if you're otherwise exempt, is look at your plan document. If you make reference after reference to ERISA, you are an ERISA plan. If you have, if you COBRA or Mental Health Parity or Women's and Newborns Protection Act, if you subject your employees to all of that, well, then you're subjecting them to the CAA too. So it's more of a ad hoc sort of thing. You ended up being subject to risk, even though you started off not doing that. And many times that plan document, what somebody did is they tore a page out of a fully insured group. They stuck your name on it and said, here, you're self-funded and didn't do a sweep of a lot of the ERISA provisions. You might look into that, that uh, document again and see if there is an ERISA section that wasn't removed. It says, here are your ERISA rights. Well, if I have ERISA rights, I'm subject to ERISA. So be very careful in saying, oh, that doesn't apply to me. Get with somebody who can tell you for sure. So generally speaking, you know, we're looking at 95% or better of plans are going to be subject to this. And I say, 
That's a good thing. Yeah, I, I was just going to say government and quasi-government plans, let's face it, they are funded with taxpayer dollars, even right. though they may technically be excluded from ERISA, they should act as even higher brand of fiduciaries than your your typical corporate structure because they're dealing with taxpayer funds. Bingo. It, it bothers me so much to see, say, a county government and they just wear this badge of honor like, oh, I'm not subject to ERISA. I can right. I can ignore all this. And I just I just want to say, you know what, someday someone's going to call you out and the law is going to change and and you are going to be. um, Is this going to be a rude awakening uh, for you? So if you're a plan sponsor, especially a major plan sponsor. uh, In an area, think about this, you're at a competitive disadvantage with your own city or state or school district you're being subject to laws that they're not subject to. And if they were subject to those laws, they would be saving money like you are and your tax burden would go down. Lobby your state legislature. If they don't have a law that makes quasi-governmental units, governmental units subject to some fiduciary responsibility, they should. Agreed. I don't want to stray into politics, but that's just common sense. It is. And I agree. Thank you for saying that. Let's talk about the future then. It could just be your own predictions or it could be something that you feel is just like a guaranteed fundamental fact. That's that's good. This is where we're going to see this travel. I'm, I'm so interested in your thoughts there. Well, I'll start off with the known. I mentioned earlier that we consider there's for 2023, there's four what I'll call pillars of CAA compliance. Uh, removal of the gag clauses, reporting uh, prescription drug information doing an analysis of mental health parity costs, and finally obtaining uh, compensation disclosures from your broker. We know that that's going to grow and have more tentacles coming up in 2024 and 25 and 26. So plan sponsors, keep in mind, the process that you put in for 23, you need to put in for 23, will continue to expand in 24 and 25 and encompass more things. Things like making sure that uh, there's no balance billing for instance, on certain network plans, uh, having more detailed explanation of benefits, EOBs. There's going to be more things that come up on drug reporting. So the pillars will expand. So you have to be flexible enough in your process in 24 and 25 to continue to do this. And I think the first year is always the hardest. Get together your process, and then it's improving it. So that's number one. There's a future that it's going to expand. Number two, let's talk a little bit about enforcement as we move down. I can't tell you that the Department of Labor on January 2nd, 2024 is going to have roving gangs of auditors come out and look for this. Chances are it'll be a slow process. Chances are they might fall into this through another type of audit. Your company probably files some sort of a company tax return. It could be an 1120, they call it, or 1120S. And sometimes when you get an audit of this, and I know because I was in tax for a long time, they'll look at certain line items, say, oh, insurance costs, uh, let's see your form 5,500, if you're big enough. You file a 5,500? Yeah, I hope I did if I was old. So when they look into the 5,500, and now maybe I'm giving the Department of Labor more credit than I should or IRS, 
but you start looking at forms and you start drilling down. Oh, well, tell me about uh, your, your, I'd like to see a copy of the documentation of your attestation. Oh, I don't know what you're talking about. And then, then you're having a bad day. So that's one that, that could come and it will come. I know it will, but I don't know what year. Probably just as likely and probably over that same period of two or three years, there will be, well, there already are being lawsuits filed. I know that. And I won't name the names, but I know some of the lawsuits are being filed and I know who they're being filed against and they're searching and it, it's a, it's a, I don't want to use, it's a, it's a fishing expedition, but they're going to file one or two or three and they'll get thrown out and then they'll figure out, okay, here's how we, and they'll save the best for last and then they'll get a big one and they'll get some court to not throw it out and they'll get an opinion in a district court that is in their favor and it'll get appealed and maybe overturned. They'll file another one. There's going to be one that's successful and that will turn over the entire apple cart. It's just like it happened in the retirement business. All of a sudden, CAA will be front and center. And what you don't want to be is the last one to adopt. Because if if, if and when it becomes the thing, they're going to go back to 2023 and say, okay, here's where the penalty started. And anything that can raise revenue for the United States government is going to be a hot topic. Mm-hmm. To, to this day, and I was involved in cafeteria plan at the very highest level for many, many years and chairing certain committees. It is the greatest mystery of all time why the government hasn't shut down pre-tax. It is hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars of taxes. And every year it gets spared. Well, CAA isn't going to get spared. If there's going to be either fines or there's going to be lawsuits, and this opportunity will go away. So, you know, at, even if it's just your attestation, get something done in the next 45 days. You need to do that as a, you know, as a cover year in kind of thing. Whether you don't get into the weeds and save money yet, well, okay, there's another year for that. But don't wait on the attestation. The and good- I have to say something. Yeah, I'm go ahead. Many of the insurance carriers have now come out in the last 30 to 45 days and said, don't worry, we've got your back on CAA. Well, first of all, where were you the last two and a half years? You're just now figuring this out. We're going to file that attestation for you. You're welcome. Well, there's a little bit of a box watching a hen house there. We're going to file it for you. We didn't invite you to read it. We didn't invite you to review it. We didn't invite you to discuss it. We got your back. Well, I mean, there's a sliver of there that, okay, you got an attestation. But if you don't know what you're attesting to, it kind of becomes a lie. And a lie is negligence. Yeah. What are you attesting to? A a document that says there's no attestation, there's no gag clauses, and you've never looked at it and you're relying on them. That's a recipe for failure because they have no liability. You have the liability. The better option is, and it's carryover from the Reagan days, Ronald Reagan, that guy is, uh, it's trust but verify. Mm -hmm. Okay, go ahead and file it, but I want to see a copy of it. And I want my broker to see a copy of it. I want to show my attorney or HP Fit or somebody. Somebody's going to go through that on my behalf, which is on behalf of my employees. Careful Careful what you sign. I think that that that's so confusing right now because they think, oh gosh, with everything else on my plate, at least my carrier is doing this for me, and uh, you know I can check that box. But uh, like you said, I'm probably going to use your your quote in um, 
the marketing of this podcast. You can delegate your responsibility. You can never delegate your liability. So use it away. Please do. And it's uh -oh. been true forever on all the other laws, but this one in particular. Yeah. The good news is if they start their process and they use HP Fit as their toolbox to stay organized and document the process, um, it shouldn't take the next 45 days to get it done. They can probably decide, become a member of your service, maybe start this first of uh, December and take their time even. Maybe maybe go through the the three phases of your tool in you know a week at a time and then by the last week of the year they're ready to do their attestation they do it they're guided step by step by your tool and and they're done they did it the right way and they've got the documentation to show the process so there's good news in this there is and we we estimate that smaller plans you're talking maybe three to five hours we're not talking three to five months more complicated plans, maybe some more time. But if I could sum up everything, if you could just document that you made the effort, even if you fail, but if you made no effort, you're basically thumbing the nose at a law that's been around for three years and you said, doesn't bother me that I don't comply. I don't care about my plan participants from a standpoint of fiduciary responsibilities. That's where you're going to get in trouble. That's what lawyers who are plaintiff lawyers want to see. You thumbed your nose at it you were negligent, and now you're going to pay. Just do something, get something done, and then build on that every year. You know, And what you're doing then in legal terms is you're building an affirmative defense to any challenge by the DOL, by law firms. That's what you want. You need to be able to say, I made a quote-unquote good faith compliance effort. There's This is a serious topic, but there's silver linings and good news that we ended with. So I think that... Um, uh, when everyone finishes listening to this podcast, they should go where, Tony? Well, it, it'd be nice if they would like to go to hpfid.com. But if at any cost, at least talk to your broker, talk to your advisors, talk to your law firm. Make sure that you become educated enough to at least do the bare minimum for a good faith compliance effort for 2023. If you want a more detailed actual process, then our website can accommodate that. And we've recently just had a, a metamorphosis in that we're trying to make this uh, make this the easy button and just say, go here. And we've broken down our services to the funding methodology. Mm -hmm. If you're fully insured, go here. If you're level funded, go here. If you go self-funded, go here. Simple as that. Most plans know at least their funding methodology. They don't necessarily have to know much about ERISA, but they know if they're fully insured or not. Go there, follow the process, easy pleasing. I thank you so much for talking about this complicated subject in real world terms. I enjoyed it myself and I hope everybody else does too. So I'll I appreciate the opportunity, Christy. Oh, you're so welcome. All right, everyone. See you next time. Thank you for listening to our important discussion. For more information about the work we do at Custom Benefit Solutions, visit our website at custombenefits.work.